Hello, folks. This is the Knickknack Podcast. I'm Knickknack, a neurodivergent and queer person that seeks knowledge, truth, and justice above all else. This podcast is my way of sharing my story and processing it. This is Season 15, Episode 21, and I'm calling it, What is Neurodivergence? In my recent philosophical transition, and my drive to convince anyone concerned of its validity, it occurs to me that I may have lost over a few things. This was more a consequence of my internal excitement than anything else. So now that a bit of time has elapsed, it seems appropriate to dive into the theory and talk to and about other people that have knowledge on this topic. I have an interview lined up that will hopefully start us along the path, but before I get there, I feel I need to set the stage. So grab a breath and a beverage and we'll dive into this neurodivergent thing. The idea of being neurodivergent isn't new, although the word is. There have long, long, long been very successful people with social challenges. And in many cases, in reading their history, you see a difficult life where the bulk of the success that they had, if they had any, tends to come after the person has left the world. The tragic life stories tend to come from the person in question experiencing life, much as I do, as a continuous series of traumas. The successful ones can, at least for a time, channel the trauma and the type of thinking it leads to into great works. The kinds of works that lead the average person to focus on the end product rather than the life experience and the person that led to its creation. Switching to psychology, Maslow recognized neurodivergent traits from this kind of external perspective. In so doing, he missed the hellish life experiences of Einstein and others that he studied in his narrow focus on the end products rather than the person themselves. Modern scholars are starting to get it in limited ways, it seems, by building on Maslow's work and trying to use that in an effort to get a fuller picture. The term neurodivergent itself was coined in 1998 by sociologist Judy Singer in her honors thesis in collaboration with Harvey Bloom. I've yet to read her work directly, it's on my list, but I've done the research required to know that the coining of the phrase and its requisite ties to the poorly named social model of disability is based on recognizing the positive psychological aspects of autism. I think there is a very strong case to be made for applying the term neurodiversity to nearly all the entries in the DSM-5. For, simply put, neurodiversity is nothing more than variations from the cognitive norm that have positive attributes in the right setting. And in this sense, all the American Psychiatric Association's so-called disorders are generally positive neurological variations when the person is in the right setting and has the right amount of agency. The problem, of course, is conformity culture rarely affords the right setting and agency. And this is what leads to the tragic life stories of the creative greats that we hear and live over and over and over and over again. Going back to Maslow, his humanistic psychology was a major step in the right direction. He was the first psychologist that I'm aware of to try and study the positive aspects of humanity, whereas Skinner and Freud before him got their kicks from 
pathologizing neurological variations and trying to stamp them out. Unfortunately for neurodivergent people like myself, the modern mental health industry largely takes its cues from Freud and Skinner, mostly Skinner. This is what gives us things like the DSM, psychotropic medication, and that humbug known as cognitive behavioral therapy, which tries to pathologize a person's behavior and change it in line with the needs of the conformity culture rather than the needs of the individual. This is, of course, the last thing a neurodivergent person wants or needs, particularly if they are autistic in between the ages of about 15 and 25, when autistic burnout is at its greatest. During the bulk of this phase of my life, I was heavily into John Lennon and the Beatles. The sense of shared mind and experience I had, particularly with Lennon, was a huge part of getting through those years for me. In parallel, the social trauma that was going on, primarily me trying not to go off like a supernova with family and my few friends who inevitably misunderstood me and crossed boundaries, was a continuous challenge, and I failed quite often. I'd wager... It's only less intense these days, or only seems less intense these days, because I've learned to avoid people that don't get me or it like the plague, preferring instead to stay mostly isolated recluse that does their thing, tries to avoid undesirable stimuli, and just get by. Overall, this seems to be a healthier approach, though my psychological team doesn't agree with me. The problem being... The external world isn't set up for this type of approach, so there are difficulties. Still, perhaps, if someone had said, it's okay to drive around aimlessly and spend your days in your room listening to the Beatles while gaming and being creative, there might, just might, have been significantly less stress and trauma during that particularly important phase of my life. So, if you are a neurotypical person or consider yourself a neurotypical person, or want to be an ally of neurodivergent people, please listen to this. The absolute worst thing you can do to an autistic or otherwise neurodivergent person is force them to cross their boundaries. We have our boundaries established the way they are to protect both us and you. Primarily us, of course. But still, you know, the design is to protect both the external world and the internal world. So please, 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 please don't screw with this. Again, this is truest when said neurodivergent person is between about 15 and 25. That varies a little bit. Thinking to myself and Lennon in parallel, I think in addition to his many life traumas, in parallel with, to my own life traumas that occurred along the same timeline, and in his case, the additional stress of fame, I would imagine that just that difficult age between 15 and 25 was why he had such a hard time, particularly between 1955 and 1965. In fact, for him and for me, the harder bits even extended into our early 30s, and, you know, I'd Arguably, in Lennon's case, I'd say probably never got over it, and in my case, I doubt I'll ever truly get over it either. But there is some sort of a shift after you hit your 30s. The distress is definitely still there, but that's about the point when life experience starts to kick in, and you can mellow, even if it's just slightly. 
And again, I emphasize the word slightly there. I really don't buy that John's house husband years were as drastically calmer as we are meant to think. My parallel life experience in about the same time frame hasn't been all that much calmer either. It's just been a case of me learning to mask more and starting to avoid what sets me off so I can almost believe the lie that I'm actually healthier than I really am. In any event, learning to support young autists and other neurodivergent people is vital and there is some good work being done in this arena. Again, kind of building on Maslow's early work. There are now studies that include neurodivergent people and incorporate first-hand accounts of the internal experience. And I believe this approach has a better shot at capturing the larger picture of neurodiversity. Because the key piece that has been missing from prior research has been the internal experience and the fact that creativity is born out of the hell of the internal experience. That's, that's the way that works. Theoretically, if a greater understanding of the internal experience can be gained, then, as I've said before, systems could potentially be tweaked to be inclusive and protective of neurodivergent individuals, as opposed to trying to exclude and oppress neurodivergent people, as happens today. On this score, the expressive therapy movement shows promise, as does the work Dr. Dora Raymaker and the Academic Autism Spectrum Partnership and Research and Education in Portland State University has been doing recently. Particularly on autistic burnout, their work is incredibly prom promising and inspiring. And you can actually contribute to this type of work. Recently, I got an email from Detester magazine asking me to contribute to a survey that would be used to develop a guide for autistic teens. I happily completed the survey and will include a link to the survey in the show notes if you should want to contribute yourself. I've said it before and I'll say it again, the online component of the autistic and neurodiversity movement is vital and life-saving. Through community, we've discovered our differences and our similarities in ways that the scientific community just can't penetrate currently. And we are discovering more and more horrendous treatments that we all experience every day. And just as importantly, we've also discovered that there seems to be a crossover between neurodiversity and what I'll term as gender diversity. For me, exploring the nature of that link has me incredibly excited, especially as I try to make my way through my transition. On that note, I'm still kind of lingering in the gender non-binary sub-male slash not-quite-male with some fluidity area and using they them pronouns and sticking with a look and a name that hopefully implies and reflects my thinking as closely as possible this despite my disconnection from my body which is you know grown more severe over time as my body continuously fails to do what i want it to do but i'm hoping i've generally found the right support path to get where i need to go in that area which is the transitional goal of being agender and asexual. That transitional target, which may change of course, is pretty obviously a reflection of knowing my boundaries as a self-identifying autist. Generally speaking, for me and for many other autists, the more complex the human connection, the worse we do. So, logically, in my case, I feel I must build a hard boundary around love and sexuality. Those are just two things that I can't do in a manner consistent enough with cultural expectations. So I say, cough up the hormones and I'll just skip 
the exploration of that element of humanity. Thank you. The long-winded point I'm trying to make here is that despite everything, there are still some things that can be done as far as advocacy and activism goes. And to one degree or another, I think some element of something akin to hope exists, even if it seems distant most of the time. Going forward, I think it's important that I try and branch out from telling solely my story. I think there's a lot to be learned by studying the lives of past and current people who could be thought of or self-identify as fitting into the broad neurodiversity category. My personal interests obviously skew greatly towards John Lennon and Robert Persick. Relative to Lennon, I know few people aside from Lennon himself more knowledgeable than Anthony Rotuno. Anthony does the Glass Onion podcast on John, and in addition to doing another podcast called Life and Life Only, and being a recording artist in his own right, I've thoroughly enjoyed getting back into John Lennon and all that surrounds him through Anthony's work. He also carries a wealth of life experience and knowledge that I admire and want to learn more about. So consequently, my next podcast should be an interview with Anthony. And Anthony, if you are listening, thank you, thank you, thank you for saying yes to my very awkward invitation. I am greatly looking forward to that. Following that episode, I hope to gather more stories of other autistic and neurodivergent individuals, both famous and not yet famous, and anyone else I can conjole into sharing their advocacy or neurodivergent experiences, activism too. This, of course, will be a stretch for my very, very, very limited social skills. But you can't fail miserably unless you try. So I've got to try. As far as Persic goes, it's kind of hanging out in the background with my middle age, way too cliche motorcycle fantasies that I can't afford or do because of COVID. I have little doubt I'll get to him eventually, be it directly or more in passing. To me, his story, more than any other I've yet heard, illustrates how deeply broken the U.S. mental health and conformity culture is. I'm very, very sad to say that only a few of the methods have changed since Persick was institutionalized and treated with electroshock therapy in the early 60s. Today they talk to you and hand you pills rather than imprison you and eradicate your troublesome brain cells with electricity, at least in most cases if you're lucky enough to stay out of the prison industrial complex. But in my experience of treatment, Outside of the prison industrial complex, thank God, the outcome and prognosis as far as mental health treatment really aren't much different today than they were in the 60s, which is sad and pathetic. But hopefully with the right amount of advocacy and activism and all that sort of stuff, a little bit of research, we can get going in a better direction. Hopefully I provided a reasonable creative map for the future of the podcast here. I'll wrap things up by saying I'm doing my absolute best to stay just slightly shy of Carlin's philosophy as appealing as it is. I'm doing my damnedest to play in more in Lennon's I don't want to face it land by just basically facing it at a more manageable pace than others might try and tackle the world. I can say for certain that I definitely can't stand humans that are attempts at civilization. And I definitely include myself as a component of all that. But really, what good can come from living in denial or completely giving up? For even if you continuously fail spectacularly, 
you have to keep trying, even if it's in fits and starts and chronically inconsistent, as it so often is for neurodivergent people like myself. Obviously, I'm still struggling in my little ivory tower. If you'd like to support my work by sending up some cheese in the form of feedback or donations, please head to knickknackpod.net. That's N-I-C-N-A-C-P-O-D.net. Links and show notes, including the survey, will be available on there as well. The opening music is Raindrop Rhapsody by Josh Elkenberry. The closing music is Catch Me If You Can by Attica Attica. Find them at atticaattica.bandcamp.com. I thank both groups for allowing their creations to be used in the productions of other work. I share and know the value of the Creative Commons approach to intellectual creations. Which is why the Knickknack Podcast and FS Run Along series is copyright 2006 through 2021 by Knickknack Marsh and is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial 4.0 International License. I thank you so much for taking the time to listen. May you find the safety and support to empower you and meet your needs. Till next time, stay safe, stay sane, stay healthy, get vaccinated. Happy railroading. Happy landings. Bye. <laughs>